0: We are um, <clears throat> in a series on Christ above all, which is the message of the book of Colossians. It is where Christ is exalted and presented to us as uh, above all. As we m- narrow down this morning, we are going to look at the word of Christ above all. We've uh, been moving through the book, and here in this section at the end of chapter 3, we've slowed down, taken a verse at a time, there is a richness and a depth to the things that that Paul is communicating, that God is communicating to us, that it behooves us to slow down and dig down a little bit into what he is saying in each of these verses. We're in Colossians 3, verse 16, where he speaks about the Word of Christ, who is above all. Hear then the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of Christ that is living and true, powerful and active, converting and transforming, true and pure, Oh, Father, we pray that this morning that it would dwell in us richly, that you would open our hearts and our minds to it, that it may come in deeply and be planted in our souls in a way that stirs us and changes us in a way that shapes us according to the truth that we find here. Oh, come, don't just teach our minds, but shape our hearts and our wills that our lives might be like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. The only way that we can live a life that is pleasing to Christ is to have a mind and a heart that is saturated with the Word of Christ. Now, do you believe that is true? Do you believe that the only way that we truly can live a life that is pleasing to Christ is when we have minds and hearts that are saturated with the Word of Christ? Because if that's true, then, then your whole life would be shaped around that truth. That if you did want to live a life that is pleasing to Christ, then our relationship to the Word would be such. And our lives would be shaped so that our relationship with the Word would be such. That it would saturate our hearts and our minds in a rich way. It is one of the most important ways that we can actually know Him. For it is here that He reveals Himself to us. In fullness and in truth, and it's one of the most important ways that He makes Himself real to the soul through the truth of His Word as He writes it and causes it to live upon our hearts. You know, Lynn and I were talking this week a bit um, about postmodernism. Uh, she had been reading an article about it and and the way that our culture has shifted. There's a time when we. We were what they call modern or modernity, you know, that started with the enlightenment and it was the way that people thought and were and, and the way our culture functioned. If you have not read about it, you should, a little bit about this shift to postmodernism, modernism post-modernity uh, and the ways that it affects uh, everything and the way to shape the educational system in our country in ways that you can't even begin to believe. Uh, but it comes down, it's a shift that's taken place over the last 75 years in particular you know, it has seeds in, in, uh, in Nietzsche and in uh, existentialists, uh, but it goes deeper and it's come to a full fruition in our culture. You've tasted it. And there are ways that if you're a modern, you don't like it. Some of the informality that we have, that we have uh, bumped up against is, is part of this culture that uh, that, we are, that we are now, that we're living in the midst of. It, in it, there are good things and bad things. There's a longing for authenticity you know, we, we're, not, we're not willing to put up with stuff that seems fake or doesn't seem to get down to the heart, that doesn't seem real. There's a hungering for authenticity, uh, for dialogue. We don't just want to be taught, we want to talk about it, we want to be engaged and involved. For community, we don't just want to belong to something, we want to, to be part of a community, a part of a relational network. We have a suspicion of many things, a suspicion of authority. A suspicion of institutions, which is one of the reasons why there is this this craving for more informality because of some of that formality that seems to be institutional, seems to be distant, it's, and it's harder to trust. And so there, there's all this stuff that's going on. There are good and healthy aspects of it. There, there are some ways that what we taste in post-modernity is a good correction to some of the things that were off in modernity, things that were sterile or aloof or different in some of these cravings are really healthy, but some of them aren't, just like any culture, any shift. It's not, the world out there is still the world, and as it takes shape in culture, there are negative aspects to it that have bled into our culture and who we are. Some of the suspicions and attitudes have resulted in one of the most biblically illiterate generations since the Reformation. Reformation. Some of the suspicions and some of the attitudes that have that have arisen out of it has, has some of the unintended consequences of, of being biblically illiterate in a way that the church hasn't been in generations. Al Mohler, president of, I think, Southern Baptist Seminary, says researchers, George Gallup and Jim Castelli, put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible. They still they still say the Bible is God's word. They still hold it in high regard, but by and large, they don't read it, and they don't study it, and they don't go to places where it's taught in depth and where it's studied and it's more, uh, we, we just don't, we, we, we still revere it, but we don't, by and large, read it, study it. Because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And so Mueller asks, how, how bad is it? As the researchers tell us, that it it's worse than most of us could imagine. Resistance to formal educational methods, that institutionalism, the, you know, that whole kind of a thing, authority, you know, wanting to be part of the dialogue. The resistance to some of those formal methods have made us biblically and theologically and morally weak. Because we're not substituting it with a personal commitment to it. We're simply backed out of it. Our young people then are absorbing their moral commitments. and particularly the younger you get, the worse it gets. right? The older we are, the closer to modernity we are, and, and it bleeds down by generation. And to the, the younger the generations are, more and more they're not absorbing their morality from the scripture. You know, we think of of gender and sexuality, just for example. They're not so much absorbing because they've know they've studied the scriptures and been taught the scriptures, and and are are shaping their opinions and their commitment to convictions according to it. But they're absorbing it from their peers. Yeah, why shouldn't it be that way? That does sound nicer. That does sound that. that you know, we just it just is being drunk in with the culture and not we're not getting it and it becomes worse because as many parents are not prioritizing biblical education in their own lives or their children's lives, then their children's biblical illiteracy will be worse than their own. In other words, it will get worse by generation. The less the people growing up aren't committed to it and then their children, and it will diminish. That's one of the reasons it says it's worse than we can imagine because it's on a slide and worse than this, even that, is that many pastors then have moved away, sensing the cultural drift, sensing the the desires of the people, what they want to hear, what they want to be taught, how they want to be taught. Well, then the church adjusts and pastors begin then to, instead of preaching the Bible and, and as a way it's given to us, have gone to giving self-help talks on on uh, personal and life skills kind of a thing. You know, we've we've brought it down to, because that's where we are in a pragmatism. And so we we give those self-help talks on life skills. And what does the future of the church when we neglect biblical education, we're addicted to practical self-help, you know, what does that say about the theological and the moral bearings of the church and the generations that are going to follow us? Amos 8.11, I know it's speaking to Israel. It could be speaking to us today in modern America. As America slides where it goes. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water. But of hearing the words of Yahweh. Oh the hearing of the words of Yahweh. The words. His words. To think his thoughts after Him and to know His words in our own thinking, in our own speaking. The words of Yahweh, not, not what we often are getting these days. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, man does not live by bread alone. When he says man, there is men and women, youth and children. People do not live By bread alone, people live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, my friends, if that is true, if we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, it is no wondering that there is so much spiritual starvation going on in our culture and even in our churches. The only way to live a life that is pleasing to Christ is to have a mind and a heart saturated with the Word of God. And so the Word of Christ, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That Word of Christ, we know, is, in a very narrow sense, the Gospel. Right, The word about Christ that, that saves us and must be implanted in the soul. That word of His perfect life and His atoning death and His justifying and saving resurrection and His ascension and reigning at the right hand of the Father. That word about Christ that is faith in Him is the forgiveness of our sins. And a new life in Him. In a very narrow sense it is that gospel, but it's more than that. I think it's very clear that what Paul is intending here is not just that, but all the stuff he's teaching them and has been teaching them. Every, it's the book of Colossians when he says the word of Christ would dwell in you richly. He wants you to read this letter and read it again and give it to the next church and let them read it. I want you to know it and to understand it and to live it, that this word should dwell in you. What he's been saying, what has he said? That Christ is the image of the invisible God That Christ is the head of the church, his body. That Christ, that all things were made by him and for him and through him. This word that he's been saying that we've got to put off all these other things as we put on the new self that is in Christ as beloved and holy and chosen to put on over all these things, love, all that he has been saying, this is the word of Christ. That must dwell nothing skim sometimes on sunday mornings i wonder if i'm just like skipping a stone across the surface of the water right the way the word of god comes to us and, and by you know the time we finish lunch we've forgotten right james talks about this you know james chapter 2 about those who look in the mirror you know and so he says we're like men and women who look in the mirror and, and we go away and forget what we saw we forget the dirt. We forget I need a haircut. We forget I need, to, you know, all the stuff that we may have seen there that we need to go and do something about. It's like we, we walk away and we just forget. We binge watch everything now. Like these things. Like you hear the sermon, sermons, the next thing, the next thing. Now we binge watch show after show after show after show. You know, and it just passively washes over us. The movies, that just passively wash over us. And we don't. He says the word of Christ must, Dwell in us. Even more broadly than the letter to the Colossians, he's talking about the whole Bible. Jesus said, this is speaking of the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that speak of me. This word of Christ, the whole of redemptive history and what God is doing in the world. The word of Christ is the word of God himself. It's a word of truth and power. It converts and it transforms, right? This Word that we do not want to have a famine of, the Word of Yahweh, which transforms and converts and shapes and saves. This Word that we neglect and take for granted. Jesus said in John 6.33, 6.63, these words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that have been captured here the words that are spirit and life to the soul. The word that he says needs to come closer to home. James 1, 21 and 22, he says, Receive the word with meekness that has been implanted. Implanted. You know, to implant, you got to dig aside some of the soil. you got to soften it. Dig some aside. Put it down in there. Cover it up so that it's in there and it grows and it brings forth fruit Right? This is the word that, it, that needs to be implanted in your souls because it's able to save you in such a way that we're actually doers of the word. And we're going to get, as you hear that, that what does it mean for it to dwell in you richly? I can tell you it doesn't dwell in you richly if you're not doing it. To be doers and livers of the word. To receive it. Luther said these promises of God are holy, true, righteous, free, and peaceful words. They're full of goodness. The soul clings to them with a firm faith, and it 's so that he will be so closely united with them, altogether absorbed in them that it will not only will they share in their power but will be saturated and intoxicated by them. And I love this image that he gives here, just as the heated iron glows like the fire, right and you think about that i don 't know. TV, even now, all these shows that are on these. uh, Anyway, anyway, so the forged in fire, everybody. There's a new artisan, you know, movement. Everybody's going back to the old crafts, blowing glass, and 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 now in the forged in fire, most of them are making swords, you know, and other things. But anyway, you take that piece of metal and you put it in the fire to make the sword. But you watch the metal when it goes in the fire, and the metal itself begins to glow with the heat of the fire, and then becomes malleable and shaped and sharpened and all of that right and and luther is saying like isn't it you know the way the word works it when we are in the word and it dwells in us richly in other words it goes from us just you know skimming over the fire but being in it in such a way that the that the properties of the fire actually start to put the this the, the iron the steel the metal itself begins to glow with the power of the fire itself and it and it prepares it and makes it malleable and sharp in all the ways that we want to do it because of the union of the fire with it. So the Word imparts its qualities to the soul. But you've got to put yourself like that piece of iron in the Word, like in the furnace, and you've got to be in there. It's got to heat you up. It's got to make you glow. It's got to change you and empower you in ways. It has to dwell in us. Right? When he says the word has to dwell in us richly, the word there, an oikos. Oikos is a home. And to an oikos, something is for it to, to live in the home, to be in the home, to dwell there, to live there. I mean, in other words, it's where you eat and sleep. It's where all your stuff is. It's where you spend your time. Like It's, it's a place where you know, you're literally living in abiding presence. He says it needs to dwell in us richly. And the word richly, the plousios, is the word that's used for the very rich in the Bible, for the wealthy, for those who have a, an overabundance. And he says the word of God needs to come home to live in, a, in an abundant, wealthy, rich way in us. Calvin says, nor would he, the Lord, simply have them, us, take a slight taste, Merely of the word of Christ, which is often what we do in a quiet time. Read the thing, check, you know, hear a sermon, check. But then I'm on to lunch and then and then and then. And just to hear a a slight, you know, we expose ourselves to it in some small way. Calvin says that's not his intention. He wants us to feast on it, to be full of it, to be saturated with it. It's the only way that it actually will change us. And we wonder why we're not different. We wonder why we're, we're not more like what we read in the Scripture. And the reason is that we're not in the Scripture, so it's not in us. It means at least four things. Systematic abundant intake. you got to take it in. That does mean preaching and teaching. It does mean that. It means reading. It means classes. It means in any way you can find it to be taking in quantities of the word, filling it. Repetition, there's something for it. you ever notice you're reading to a young child who can't read themselves? And you read the book to them, and then you tell them, hey, go get a book off the shelf, and you know I'll read it to you. They get their favorite. They always come back with the same one. You know, like, really? Can you go get something else? You know, no. All right, we'll read this one again. You know, but you open it up and you go to read them, and they look at the picture and they can tell you the story. They'll start reading it to you. Let me read it to you. My turn. And so they open it up and they look at the picture and they tell you, almost verbatim, the words on that page, the story, and they turn the picture and they can. They, they begin to tell you the story. Where because the story went from being out there, they read it so much, they were in it so much, they listened. It went from being out there, the story you're reading to them, to the story that they know and could tell you and articulate it almost verbatim, page by page, walking you through it. It's just one of those things, the way it goes from being out there to being in here and dwelling in us. It means we memorize it then. Writing in our minds, in our hearts. Dallas Willard says, draw certain key portions of the Scripture into our minds, and make them a part of the permanent fixtures of our thought. And you just think about that kind of language. Really. The way it becomes a permanent fixture of our thoughts, of the way we think. That's repetition. That's being in it. That's even memorizing it. That's thinking about it. This is the primary discipline for the thought life. We need to know them like the back of our hand. And a good way to do that is to memorize some of them constantly turn them over in our minds as we go through the event and circumstances of our lives. When you take these things into your mind, your mind will become filled with the light of God himself. And the light, like the iron, becomes glowing with the heat of the fire. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness loses. And you say, I can't memorize like that. says, I assure you, you certainly can. God made your mind for it and he will help you and and we don't need to make it more than it really is most of the memorizing i do these days is when i'm having a quiet time i'm just in the bible and i'm reading something and it speaks to my soul you know it's not some system i mean i'm not against the system and all that don't get me i'm I'm all for systematic hard work like you memorize the 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 multiplication tables you just got to memorize them so they're internal you know, but I'm also, for me, a lot of it is I'm reading the scripture and that scripture is challenging me. It's convicting me. I hear you, Lord. It's saying to me, it's promising to me. There's something about it that, 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 that communicates to my soul. And so I take it with me. I spend enough time in it, just that sentence, that verse, enough time in it that it can go with me. Sometimes I'll just write it on a note card and literally bring it with me. To memorize it, to let it seep into we have to take it in. We have to memorize pieces. We have to think about it. You can't underestimate the way our, our world has just stopped thinking. Never just sit and think. Kick your feet up, do what, well, you know, not a book, not watching something, not, you know, no, thinking. <laughs> Thanks, man. Just thinking. Thinking about something you heard, something you read, right? As often or not, you're reading a book, you know, read a little bit, put your mark in it, close it, and think it. There's those who said you should read half as much and think twice as much, right? In other words, think about what you read. You'd do much better off if you thought about what you read than if you just kept reading or kept watching or doing whatever it is as we binge everything these days. John Owen says it will ruin our souls if when we read the scriptures, how the saints of God express their experience of faith and love and delight in God and their constant meditation on him. We grant that it was so with them and they were good and holy men, but it's not necessary that it should be so with us. These things were not written in scripture to show us what they were. They're written here to show us what we ought to be. And so as we read it, it awakens in us or should awaken in us a desire, a longing, a prayer. And this is the last if we take it in and we memorize it or think about it, and is to pray it. We cannot expect what we read there to become part of our lives and to actually see our lives conformed to it and changed apart from the power and intervention of God. Whose word it is. and So we pray. As he says, Robert Murray McShane says, you read your Bible regularly, of course. Oh, but do try to understand it. (laughs) And still more, to feel it. You ever read the Bible to feel it? To feel what it's saying? To own what it's saying? To want what it's describing? You know, to claim what it's promising? To not just read it, to feel it? To turn the Bible into prayer? Thus, if you're reading the first psalm, you spread the Bible on a chair before you get on your knees. You know the first Psalm, blessed is the man who uh, stand, uh, walks not in the way of the wicked, who stands not in the way of sinners, who, who sits not in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by the streams of water and he will bear fruit. And his leaves will be green in season. And in everything he does, he will prosper. And he says, when you read that psalm, put the psalm on the chair and pray. Oh, God, give me the blessedness of this man. Let me not walk in the way of the ungodly. Oh, far be it from me to stand in the way of sinners. Let me not sit down and get hunkered down in, in, in my bad attitudes and scoffing. God, let me be the man who delights in your word. I want to be like a tree with your, your truth and the grace flowing up from the roots. dwelling in us richly, shaping and informing our praying and our thinking and so our speaking and our living and our choosing and our attitudes and everything else glowing with the fire of that which we have soaked in. Let me just quickly say that we see it overflowing because this word, he says, is, is the shape The Christian community, it shapes our relationships and it shapes our worship. It shapes everything. And if it doesn't, we can't say that we are his community unless the word of Christ, as we say, just like you can't live a life pleasing to him, we can't be a community pleasing to him unless that word dwells richly, which is why he goes on, let the word dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's what I'm doing to you this morning. I'm trying to teach you a little bit, admonish you a whole bunch. But it also is something we do with each other. In other words, as we have this intake of the word and as we're shaped by it, we speak into each other's lives. More of it happens out there than happens right here. Or it should. And, and what a rich community it would be if you were speaking that word into each other's lives in all wisdom. Unfortunately, sometimes it, the advice we get in church is not so great. You know, at least I've seen advice given. I'm like, really? No, 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 no. You know, there's, you know in all wisdom, in other words out of His Word. And we're teaching and admonishing one another and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our hearts to the Lord. Right? Psalms are from the Old Testament. The hymns are more of the cultural shape of hymns to God that they knew in the culture and that now... That we would sing to God and spiritual songs. Word is what word we get odes from. It's more of this the, the, the response. All, it says a variety of music in, in the response of God's people from the psalms and the hymns and spiritual songs. He says, in the heart. Unto God. And what he is after there, when he says in the heart, he's not talking about silently. When he says in the heart, he is talking about Sincerely. He's talking about authentically, to sing them in the heart unto God. Jesus says, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so in vain do they worship me. It's vain if, if, if the words are on our lips, but not in our hearts. If we're not singing our hearts out, right, L- literally singing our hearts out, right, what's in, out. If it's not coming from in to out, if we're not, the words as we're singing them up here, that, that we're meaning them and and taking them from our heart to His, then we're not worshiping. We're singing. Do you know, do you know that that music. Here I'm, I'm going to step on a few toes. The danger in churches, a lot of churches, it, it, is that people are worshiping music and not the Lord. Because we think that music that is done in church, if it's beautiful and it's done in church, or you sing it in church, it's worship. And that's just not true. That's why Jesus can speak to the congregation and say, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we know we just love music. Go to a secular concert, they are singing their hearts out. And they are enjoying the music. And singing their hearts out, enjoying the music, is not worship. Whether it's done in this room, Or in some room over there. But we sing these spiritual songs and hymns in our hearts unto God. And that alone is worship. Only you can worship. No music worships. Only you can worship. And we worship when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly and overflows in our whole community in our worship. God's people are a people of the book. Let me just ask you: Would people look at your life, and say, "Person of the book"? That's a person of the book, and you can tell it in their priorities and the way they live their life and everything else. Are you a person of the book? Would you say, "I am a person of the book"? The word of the Lord, by which people must live or die. The only way to live a life pleasing to Christ and have a church pleasing to Christ is to have minds and hearts saturated with the Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word that is living and true and that you've given it to us. It's captured here. Not to tell us what was, but to call us to what we are to be. Father, I pray that you would make us a people of the book oh lord what will we do what changes can we make what choices what must we make what priorities must we set what other things must go so that we would be a people of the book that it would be central to our lives and who we are that we would heat our souls in it in such a way that they would glow with the power of the truth and that it would shape us. Oh, Father, have mercy. Teach us again. Lift our eyes and give us a vision and a passion for what it means to be people of your word. That we would love it. And that it would dwell in us. And it would overflow in so many ways. In the name of Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen.